0: Blog talk Radio.
1: Today on Backroom Politics, we talk the Pulitzer Prize going to The Guardian and The Washington Post on their Snowden coverage. We talk about Secretary Sebelius' resignation from HHS. At the 5 o'clock hour, we'll have special guest Del Weaver, New York Times bestselling author of Raw, High, Down, and Bloomberg, criminal justice correspondent, and the GOP Hypocrisy of Family Values. Can they get out of their own way when it comes to regaining their traction? That and tell me a story today on Backroom Politics.
2: Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is backroom politics to join the discussion you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713 and now the moderator of backroom politics justin russell
1: And good afternoon out there in Radio Land. It is Tuesday, which means it's time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics on Blog Talk Radio Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Join me as they do every Tuesday. Normally to my left would be the former eight-term member of Congress representing Washington's 2nd Congressional District, the Congressman Honorable Al Swift, but he is stuck in a line at the House Post Office on Business oh, up there. Washington. Well, House of Representatives. House of Representatives. I mean, yeah. this is a former representative. He's yeah. stuck in a line at the Post Office. <laughs> to my, tw- He'll be here shortly. Joining us, me to my 12 o'clock across the table he is the former Vice President of the National Broadcasting Corporation for Government Affairs. He is the former floor chief of then Congressman Gerald R. Ford. He is the Honorable Bob Hines. Hello, Bob.
3: Good afternoon
1: on this crummy, rotten, rainy day in Washington. This Simpson. is a crummy. I thought we were done with winter and it's going to be freezing tonight. Yeah. yeah. Great.
3: I don't understand that, but I think it's probably Congress's
1: fault. Uh, and probably. <laughs> and to my right, ironically, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce for International Affairs. He is a longtime Senate staffer in Washington Center and a very handsome distinguished fellow from the Stimson Center. He is the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan.
2: Hey, Justin.
1: Uh, Hello. Carl Tubin is celebrating Passover to our Jewish listeners, uh, you know, Lahayim, having Passover to you and yours and your families, and joining us on the air from remote locations we don't even know where, she is the former House Counsel for Homeland Security under Betty Thompson, she's a former Obama appointee as General Counsel of the Maritime Administration, she's the Honorable Denise Kraft. hi Denise.
4: Hi Justin, greetings from Fayetteville, North Carolina. Woo! <laughs> oh, down your own, down, down by your tin.
1: Yes, I am. There you go. Hey, uh, I want to start off before we get started and everything. We've got a busy show today, but I, I do want to talk about one thing real quick. On a serious note, uh, today, uh, April fifteenth, along with being tax day, but today is the one-year anniversary of the bombings and the horrific events that surrounded the bombings at the Boston Marathon on Patriots Day, exactly one year ago today. Uh, A lot of media coverage going on about it. However, we here at Backroom Politics just want to say one thing about this. Uh, The events were tragic. Law enforcement and first responders continue to demonstrate heroism beyond the regular call of duty. Uh, When times get tough, the people in the first responder community, and in this case the people of Boston, show why they are in fact Boston strong. For those, who lost, for those who lost their lives, we keep them in our memories and our prayers. For those who were directly affected, who were injured, and those who had family members that were injured, our support and our prayers continue to go out to you. But we just wanted to just take a couple of minutes and say, you know what, to, to those who listen to us in Boston, we support you, our thoughts are with you today, and you guys continue to be Boston strong, and we are Boston strong with you. Uh, that being said... Uh, We'll keep you guys in our thoughts and our prayers all day. Let's get right to it, folks. The first topic of business today. Uh, By the way, you can join us uh, on the air if you wish, toll free, 877-662-3713. You can email me your questions at justin at backroompolitics.org or you can tweet your questions to me at backroompolitics on the Twitter system. Uh, First line of business, the Pulitzer Prize goes to the Guardian, and the Washington Post for their coverage of Edward Snowden. Oh, let's just be clear about this. I've got so many thoughts on this, but, uh, Bob, you are former vice president of a media source, obviously one of the largest media sources in the country, National Broadcasting Corporation, NBC. What do you think about the Pulitzer Committee coming up and giving the Guardian and the Washington Post dual Pulitzers for their Snowden coverage? Uh-huh. Go! How
3: about it? <laughs> it's an unusual uh, award. It is usually given for insightful political uh, reporting. In, uh, you know, working on interesting issues, finding out uh, some uh, some of the problems that are going on someplace on Capitol Hill or someplace else. That is really uh, is really deep work and hard background re- reportage. This really doesn't seem to fit that, and I'm not. uh, I mean, it obviously is. It's 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 fair to say that the uh, uh, the story, uh, the background, the the reality of the facts of the the, uh, Snowden situation is is a major major uh, intelligence problem and issue, but I'm not so sure that there was a great deal of, of of fundamental work and research uh, and the reporters. It's an unusual, it's a big story, but it's an unusual story in the way that it was so public all of a sudden, but it wasn't so great because wonderful reporting was being done, it was just that the story was coming out all over the place. Well,
1: I mean, first of all, I, w- I want to read the citation that was put out by the Pulitzer Prize Jury uh, at Pulitzer.org. For distinguished examples of meritorious public service by a newspaper or news site through the use of its journalistic resources, including the use of stories, editorials, cartoons, photographs, graphics, videos, databases, and multimedia or interactive presentations or other visual material, a gold medal awarded to the Washington Post and the Guardian U.S. It, it, Alan, going off of their citation... I just don't see the Guardian having that much meritorious about it, other than they recruited, convinced, and got a guy who was marginal at best in his levels of seniority at the NSA for disclosing national secrets.
5: Yeah, let's remember what happened here. Snowden steals the stuff. He's a contractor. He steals a lot of stuff, (laughs) hundreds of thousands of documents he turns it over to a woman he barely knew who is a film documentary maker uh documentary filmmaker um she in turn says you know there's this guy who used to be at the post bart Gilman, who did a lot of work after 2001 and then there's this guy for the guardian he's not even really a journalist he lives in brazil this guy Greenwald, um, but she, they were two people known to her. She was the connection. She was almost an accidental connection to Snowden. And then she was the link to the post and, and to the guardian. Um, it, 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 as, as Bob was saying, usually you, you go find your story, you go dig it up. Now, having said that stories come all sorts of different ways. And the Pentagon Papers got one, but for the New York Times way back when. But that was a historical piece looking back. This is ongoing stuff. There's a lot of national secrets that are involved here. It's clearly illegal. You bring these papers in. The Post, before they were done, put 28 people on this thing. They threw everything at it. They dug, they talked, they gathered a lot of extra information. They did a great job with the story way more than than, uh, than, the, than the website of, of The Guardian, which isn't even... I mean, arguably, The Guardian's a British-based paper. You're supposed to be a U.S. paper, an American paper, to win the, the Pulitzer, and apparently what they did is they said, well, they, they published it on the website, which is an American website. The, the problem with all of this is you take this dirty material, this illegal material, and you launder it through journalists, and then you turn the power over to the journalists to decide what to put out and how to put it
1: out, and that is really, really troubling. But Denise, you know, when, when we when we look at this, I mean, we had uh, Lewis Clark from uh, the uh, General Accountability uh, Organization, who, who basically talked about the fact that look, Edward Snowden is in fact a whistleblower. He was talking about illegal activities. But it, 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 it's odd to me that a contractor with a, with a high-level security clearance, in this case a top-secret uh, compartmentalized clearance, this guy basically took top-secret classified information and went and, whether you call it a whistleblower or divulged in violation of the national security, that's got to be a red
4: flag to
1: those inside government.
4: Well, it's a red flag to those inside government, but this was the biggest story of the year. So for me, it it wasn't a surprise that uh, The Washington Post and The Guardian got the Pulitzer. This is the story that people spent the entire year talking about and still has some significant ramifications right now with our relationship with Germany and other countries that have now come to recognize that maybe we were doing some things that gained us additional information that these countries didn't expect us to have. I I, I think the Pulitzer Committee was sending a signal thing that this was a big event, and we recognize how big this was, not only here in the United States, but elsewhere.
1: But, Denise, I mean, doesn't it almost invite others that might have access to security clearance that that may be even more security-sensitive, that might be even uh, more detrimental to national security here in the US and abroad in our interests to, hey look, I don't like what's going on, I'm just gonna go ahead and give it to a journalist.
4: No, I, I don't think that's gonna invite other people to share this type of information. Snowden will never be allowed to set foot in the United States again and if he does he's probably going to jail for the rest of his life. I mean that that's a calculation that people are going to have to go through and say, if I release this type of information, I'm going to go to jail. So not a lot of people are going to willingly say, I want to go to jail.
1: Bob Hines, let me ask you. I mean, does this, I mean, as a vice president at NBC, would you encourage your journalists? I mean, Denise is right. This is a story that we've talked about for now over a year. And it has changed and directly affected national policy, (laughs) national security and intelligence gathering capabilities and operations. In that aspect, did the Washington Post and the Guardian do their job? Well, once
3: the material was out, I think they did a. I don't know about the Guardian so much, but the Post, as Alan said, were all over the story. They covered it from a million different angles and had about, you know, as he said, many many people on it, and they spent a great deal of time on it. But it wasn't much original reporting. I mean, original information, so to speak. And you know, that's the only thing I. That's the reason I I was surprised that it was something that became the Pulitzer that they getting would you would questions. you
1: encourage your journalists to do what the washington post did in light of what we know now
3: well if you mean what we would we have would nbc have encouraged them to uh to uh you know do all they could do on un- to get a hold of the material and make it public i suspect yes they would have
5: alan moore so, so here's the problem we have national secrets here we have many, many, many national secrets here, and we've turned them over to a news organization. The Washington Post has been around a long time. They're, they're pretty careful and pretty responsible, even though they're only kind of a shadow of their former self in quality and people and all the rest of it. But they take, because they're D.C.-based and, and, and have a long history here, they're pretty careful about talking to people in government. Here's what we've got here's what we're going to publish, we're telling you in advance, and to give you a, a chance to, say, to, to explain why that's going to put lives in danger, for example. And they hold off some stuff, they put other things out there. The problem, you know, having said that, does that, then do they get a free pass? No, but at least they've got a lot of experience. A lot of experience that The Guardian didn't have, and this guy Greenwald, who, as far as I remember, wasn't even a real journalist, <laughs> Um, but, but but what you do is you take, and, and Denise mentioned Germany. Why are the Germans so upset? Because we were tapping Angela Merkel's cell phone. Now, I have no idea why, why we thought that she would be saying all these kinds of things, driving around in a car or walking from place to place on her cell phone, thinking maybe other people could catch the, the cell phone too, who knows, but... It was stupid for us to do it. It was also really stupid for that to be released. I don't know how that happened when you've got the the Guardian and the Post both with the same information. It's sort of like they're going back and forth. So if, you know, if the Post is trying to be responsible, talk to the Pentagon, talk to NSC, talk to the White House, and all of a sudden the Guardian is going to just go ahead because why do what do they care? They're guys in Brazil and they're in Britain. Um Well, then the Post has got to play catch-up.
1: It it was a a crazy, wacky business. Let's let's talk about Greenwald for a second, though. Alan, you brought up Greenwald a couple of times. I mean, Greenwald, arguably a journalist or not, uh, Greenwald was part of the coverage and a key figure. But the problem I have with the Pulitzer Committee is they seem to have given the prize to the Guardian U.S. web edition for their coverage of Snowden. At a time where Greenwald did something that many journalists consider a taboo, which is he made himself part of the story. Bob Hines, that to me kind of makes me scratch my head as to what the jury was thinking as far as was that journalistically credible? I mean, every time we turn around, he's on CNN, he's on Fox. Well, as Alan said, I'm not sure
3: you would... The day before all this broke, and I, I don't think you, a lot of people thought he was actually a, a true journalist of profession. I mean, it, it's it, it's a whole bunch. Of, there's a whole bunch of funny people running around and getting a hold of the stuff.
1: Doesn't make them a journalist because doesn't make them a journalist just because they got the material. Right, but let, I mean, let's be and also let's be clear. Greenwald did not win a Pulitzer. It was a no. Guardian U.S. edition. It was the total website edition of the, no. of, of the uh, Guardian that won. But he was still a key figure in that. Uh, Denise Krab, um you know, we've we talked about this whistleblower versus traitor argument uh, with several times on the show. Uh, does this validate the fact that Edward Stone was, in fact, a, a, a whistleblower?
4: I think it validates to some that he was a whistleblower, but I, I, I don't think that it validates to everybody that it was a whistleblower. I think there are a lot of people here in the United States that believe that he's a traitor, it, it, and it's very difficult. It's very difficult to say what he is because you can look at this story from several different perspectives. And from one perspective, yes, he's let you know go a lot of U.S. secrets. On the other hand, some of the information that he let go, should we have been tapping somebody else's phone? Should we have been tapping the German, you know, Angela Merkel's phone? Personally, I don't think so. I don't think that sends the best message to our allies, and Germany is our allies, that we trust them. It's a complicated story, so it's not very black and white.
5: Alan Moore. Well, uh, there's a lot of stuff that that we shouldn't have been doing. I don't think there's any question about that. Uh, Interestingly, on the great big question of gathering information on... Phone conversations uh, that 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 are either either start or end in America, um, uh, where we have, we, we, <laughs> for a while there, we were collecting, and I think we still are, frankly, uh, the in, information on every single phone call: what phone number gets called, what phone number makes a call, what time, what day of the week, what time of day, and how long the call lasted. We don't we don't collect the content. That was that, not because we wouldn't want it. It's just to be crazily, completely impossible. The whole point of all of this is, when we find somebody in uh, in uh, Tunisia, for example, who's uh, uh, making some phone calls, and we have reason to believe that they're terrorists, and we discover that they're talking, that they're making phone calls to some uh, handful of numbers in America, we can go look at those look at those people. So we're collecting. Billions and billions and billions of information in the hope that there may be a handful of pieces of information we might want. Is that a good idea? Who the heck knows? We are still doing it. The president is trying to figure out a way to continue to do it. And and what he has said is, we're not going to keep collecting it centrally. We're going to require the phone companies to keep it so that when we want it, we can go get them to do it. And we're going to have to pay them to do it because they're going to say, we're not doing that that's ridiculously expensive. We don't have the capacity for all of that. Well, so the biggest piece of news in all of this is that we're going to continue to do what people uh, are 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 so excited about and don't totally understand. We, uh, Al, we're we're talking about the Pulitzer going right. to the Post and
1: the
4: and
5: the, the Guardian. Guardian for, well,
1: let me ask. Uh, let me ask. You know, straight from his VIP position in a very long line at the House <laughs> Post Office, the former congressman himself, <laughs> Al Swift, joining us. Al, you're also an Emmy-winning, uh, an Emmy-winning broadcaster journalist yourself. That
2: didn't help me on the hill at all.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, or here either. it does not give you any credibility <laughs> here either. But that's a side point. But as any, you know, as, as somebody who knew Ben Bradley, as somebody who who came from a journalistic background, uh, Al, it, it, it seems to me like I've heard people talk about the fact that had Ben Bradley been alive. Had, uh, had uh, Catherine Graham been alive, they would have been all over it and then some. Uh, although there are some that also say that Ben Bradley also knew the, the the fine line of divulging national secrets versus getting a scoop on a story. Is this something that will down the road promote journalism and journalists all around to go out there and find these National security stories in Dimeosa.
2: Well, wish that all senior editors of all publications were as intelligent and as balanced as Ben Bradley. Uh, people didn't always agree with him. Uh, conservatives thought he was too liberal, uh, which perfectly. And know, liberals
1: right? thought he was too conservative. Sometimes. <laughs> thought he was too
2: conservative, uh, but he was very responsible, and I. looked at those opportunities where he was asked this question. Right. You know, and he had always very solid, good reasons for why he made the decision he did. He didn't always agree with those either, but he had rationale, and it wasn't just a public's right to know, screw you, uh, kind of a a response. So I, and, and Catherine Graham had guts. The combination was dynamite, and uh, they they might well have uh, handled this uh, more aggressively.
1: Bob Hines, you also knew Ben Bradley in your time here in Washington.
2: Incidentally, I didn't know Ben
1: Bradley. Uh, Oh, I thought you knew. See, you talked about Ben Bradley a couple of times there. See, look, you're correcting your own facts. That's awesome. (laughs) Al may be
5: old, but he's not that old.
1: Oh,
0: okay.
1: (laughs) Bob, you also had interactions with with Bill Bradley uh, back in the day. Uh, Bradley, well, my some are saying today that this is our modern-day Watergate for the Washington Post. In,
3: in, in some ways, it is. Let's put it this way. When you get the kind of information that the Post got, there's no way that they're not going to take a real hard look at it and say, can we, how can we use this? because they're not just going to put they're not just going to say fold it up put it away and lock it away in a closet they can't do that they're journalists and they're going to do something with it I mean, to, that's just the way the journalism but, but Bob,
1: works. But let me bring up this question, though, Bob. When we talk about this, you know, when we do put it in the pro, in the perspective of this is a modern day Watergate for the Washington mm-hmm. Post, they want a Pulitzer Prize for their coverage of Watergate. Right. Uh, ben Bradley and Catherine Graham were very much instrumental in promoting and getting that story to the front page from Woodward and Bernstein. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, when you look at this right now, Watergate didn't involve national security. It was no. catching the president in a no. lie. This involved national security. Is there a difference? Of course there's a difference. There's a difference
3: in, in impact more than anything else. I mean, so, 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 the, so President Nixon was, you know, and his team trying to get reelected were, were doing things they shouldn't be doing. Big, blank, and deal as far as the French or the Germans or the Italians or anybody else cares about it. It's important for, it was important to the United States. It's, it's, it wasn't important around the world in that sense. It may have have weakened the president, certainly it did, and it may have held the United States up to, uh, you know, probably a bunch of Italians and Frenchmen say, yeah, they're just like us. But the fact of the matter is, the reality is, they're very different issues. One, a domestic issue completely, and the other one, an international disaster for the United States all over the world with our friends who are suddenly discovering that everything they're talking about is being... Given to, given to the United States uh,
2: because they're, taking,
3: they're stealing telephone messages.
1: Congressman Al, how naive
2: can they be? They're doing it to us. Sure. What, what on earth makes them think we're not doing it to them? This, is, this has been going on for... I, I, I was told that during the Second World War, <coughs> the Germans, who were based in Vienna, would play golf on Tuesdays, Thursdays and Saturdays and the Allies would play it on Mondays, Wednesdays and so forth. You know <laughs> everybody in town was a spy. Everybody was spying on everybody else and everybody knew it. And to come in and say, I'm shocked. I'm shocked to you know there's spying going on here is ridiculous.
1: Well well Alan Moore, this Congressman Al brings up a very valid point. Was this basically media hyped up to generate their own news cycle?
5: Well, look, um, the the scope of what was what was going on, which was made possible by significant changes in technology that simply didn't exist in the past, um, uh, is is uh, awe inspiring in its way, just because it because it is so massive. but I think, you know, the Pulitzer notwithstanding, this was a very big story. It's still playing out. There's still, you know, we've got we've got people at the Post and people at the Guardian playing god, deciding what to put out, whether somebody's going to get hurt. And the team at the Washington—I don't—I'm not that comfortable with having a team. Now it's the second team, if you will, at the Washington Post make those decisions. And I'm really not comfortable with this sort of group, the, the the ragtag group at the Guardian and this documentary filmmaker who was the original conduit. So Pulitzer, fine, the, it's done, and it's not that big a surprise. As as Denise said, what what I think is the bigger question is what rules should govern the behavior of journalists who uncover national secrets that are illegal to to make public and that question doesn't go away there's so many news sources now out there in the world of cable TV and the internet um, and, and social, social media that the ability to control information is harder and harder to do. The the the, the newspapers, the the journalists of the world, whether the real ones or self self named ones, all want some kind of protection. Oh my God, First Amendment! We got to be able to say what we what we want to do. And I just think that 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 we have got to come back in the modern world and and look hard and say, what are we willing to tolerate, um, and and what are the uh, where do we draw the line on what we what's permissible in terms of divulging secrets and and, and what is it and what the ground rules really are for for
1: journalists? Denise Crabb.
4: I agree with Alan. I mean, you've got a lot of different sources, but I, I just want to remind folks that back in nineteen you know seventeen when Pulitzer you know the prize was first given out, there were a lot of complaints about journalism back then. I mean, you had know, complaints being called you know, yellow journalism, and, and did the journalists start the war between the United States and Cuba? I mean, the, the statements we're making about journalists today have been made in the past for over you know, 100 years. We're in changing times. The journalists we have now are different than we had 100 years ago, but we're going to have to learn to adapt to what, you, what we're seeing. Not, and and we, as part so, of that adaptation is, is how we do this. But Denise, we also talk
1: about a time, you know, we're in different, a whole different world when it comes to journalism. We have umpteen different agencies with 24-hour news channels. They're working a 24-hour news cycle. We have the internet. We have bloggers. We have journalists that may not really be journalists or members of the press. Uh, you know, we go back, and I go, and I keep using this one statement from one of my favorite films, *An American President*, where. Martin Sheen looks at uh, Michael Douglas and says, "You know, if you know if if uh, FDR had run for president today, he never we never elect a president in a wheelchair. Back then, we had a certain honor amongst thieves. Al Congressman Al, you were part of that old school journalism community." It, it just seems then that there was an understanding that we didn't cross certain lines as far as national security divulging national secrets. That seems to be gone now.
2: There, there was some, <clears throat> but uh, this debate has gone on as long as as uh, as long as we've had a free press and will go on as long as we have a free press uh, Drawing the line of, of, of what a free press can do is, is something that I think we should have more debate in this. I, I really get upset with both politicians and journalists who say it's the public interest we, when well, it's their own self-interest that drives them to go as far uh, as they, as they uh, go. Uh,
1: around the horn, and we got a we got a uh, email question from a listener. Uh, actually, we've got two. One is uh, one person's interested that if we had the opportunity to interview Edward Snowden, as members of the, of the press that some say we are. Uh, what would you ask him? Well, what you, would you interview him? Congressman Al?
2: Well, yeah, I would interview him. Uh, you know, you'd, you'd interview sure. anybody. If you'd, you'd interview Stalin if you get, get the chance. Uh, what would I ask him? That I would, I would spend a lot of time thinking that through. You'd only get so much out of him to begin with, and you'd need to ask the right You can spend an awful lot of time asking frivolous questions.
3: Bob Mines. I suppose if I I was talking to the gentleman, I think the first question I would ask him, why did you feel you had to do it?
5: Interesting question. Alan Moore? Yeah, I have a couple of questions. I I would first of all want to know what he might do differently now, because he has taken so much flack, I think justifiably so, for giving the stuff over. Out of his own control, and then getting out of the country and now he's sort of stuck out of the country, I think myself there are ways that he could have done this, probably dealing with a, a national politician to get this information out there and make him somebody who could still stay here at home and not and not be so hated so that that one question what would he do differently and, and would he, in that regard, have done something differently two three does it does it trouble him? that these people that he didn't even know before and were beyond his control now have control over all this information, um, and did he give up too much?
4: Right. Uh, Denise scrap? I'd ask him what his biggest surprise has been in the past year. I mean, what were his expectations when he released this information? Were these expectations met? And, and what hasn't been met in the past year that he thought would would happen?
1: And uh, interesting. And the other question we have real quickly was the last uh, minute here of the segment we've kind of gone over a little bit is a uh, listener wants to know, do, do we as backroom politics, do we break that story if we have it? Comes from now. Uh,
2: I would not think that this little group would break the story. First of all, we're not there but if to... we,
1: But if we had the capability, I mean, let, let's be honest, we broke we, we one story once before that had national significance. That was the announcement before anybody else had it. Of, uh, of Leon Panetta going over to Secretary of Defense and General Petraeus coming up as DCI we've done it before we could possibly do it again would we have done it if we had the uh, the information? I doubt it Bob Hines? I don't think I would have
3: wanted to be a
1: part key to
3: putting that material out
5: Alan Moore? We would not have we don't have the capability to go into the government and say well, what have we got here what kind of damage might occur, we'd have to do all of that sort of due diligence that the Post did, that the Guardian claims it did, and we, and, and that would, and suddenly your little narrow window of opportunity disappears. Yes.
1: All right, well, I'm going to let that be the last word,
2: well, 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 Congressman. Well, now, real you, quick, you, unless you talked about this before I got here, I, I think it would be very interesting to note that this was under a new owner of the Washington Post. And I would love to know how deeply he was involved in, in this. You're work. talking about
1: Jeff Bezos of Amazon.
5: Right. Because
2: no, but this, this all happened, this before
1: happened before Jeff Bezos. He
5: over. Yeah. He's there now to yeah. bask in, in the, the glory.
2: glory. It, it, it hit the paper before him. Way before Jeff
1: yeah.
5: yeah. yes, 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 You're
2: yes, right. I'm yes. sorry for you right.
1: up No, that's right. Hey, we're going to take, we're, we're running behind a little bit. We're going to take a quick two-minute break. When we come back, we're going to talk about Secretary Sebelius' resignation and how it affects the Obama administration, HealthCare.gov, and Obamacare as a whole. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. You know, you hear us talk about Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It's being the place to be. America's premier cigar tavern, place to make new friends or visit old friends, or even have a lively political discussion like we do here on Backroom Politics. But what you may not know, Shelley's is the place for private parties. Back Backroom is available to host events for groups of 10 to 250. From cocktail receptions to sit-down dinners, Shelley's can provide custom menu options to suit your needs and budget. Although Shelley's is a smoke-friendly environment, Shelly's can make combinations for non-smokers based on the side of your party, but heck, why would you want to? With a cigar menu like they have here, why would you even consider going smoke-free? Event pricing varies based on the time of the day of the week chosen for your event. For more information on private parties at Shelley's Back Room, go to www.shellysbackroom.com slash private-party. Shelly's Backroom, the place to be, as Bob likes to say it. It's also a place for private parties. Washington DC this is backroom politics on blog talk radio Uh, we're talking real quickly about uh, the resignation of Secretary Kathleen Sebelius as the Secretary of Health and Human Services last Thursday she announced her resignation Uh, some saw it as a surprise departure others that I've talked to inside the administration said they were just waiting for this Uh, And as such, the president has already nominated the uh, acting director of the Office of Management and Budget to be the new Secretary of Health and Human Services. Let's talk about Kathleen Sebelius. Uh, Bob Hines, Kathleen Sebelius was largely well regarded prior to the fiasco with healthcare.gov and Obamacare's release Uh, with... was she a political liability to the administration and and she may have seen this? She was the...
3: Well, it ain't her fault. The law, as written, is a mess. I think everybody understands that and understands why it happened that way. But the fact of the matter is she was stuck with a very difficult piece of legislation, which is poorly drafted, poorly done, and you, you know, you can't fix all that stuff until you, so you, so you see the problems developing, and it overwhelmed everything. The problem for her was, how do I get this thing cleaned up as well as she did? She, and I think, quite frankly, the the work that was done in the last six months, or six, six, six or eight months, it, it, was, it was a substantial improvement of the bill. And, you know, the, look, how many times did the president uh, say... I am the president, and I have decided that I don't like this section of the bill, so I'm going to change it. So I did it by an administrative fiat. Things like that had to be done, and it's not—it has nothing to do with Sibelius or his people or her people in the department. It has to do with the fact that the legislation was poorly drafted, quickly done, and because it was that way, when the real world got to dealing with it, the insurance industries and everybody in the state governments. Everybody saw the problems and brought them up, and there were just all those problems there and she was the one who everybody said Why don't you do it right
1: hey, denise kre let me ask you the question was was she sacrificed by the administration was it was she unfairly targeted
4: yes i I think she was unfairly targeted i mean as Bob just said she got saddled with a very unfortunate piece of legislation that a lot of people did not like. And somebody's head needed to roll based off of the delays and the problems associated with it. I mean, that was a political calculation. And unfortunately, I think she was sacrificed. And it is unfortunate because there's no one person that could be in charge of this type of program. I mean, it impacted many different departments. And for her to have to be responsible for every one of those is just you can't do that to one person, especially when she can't control how everybody else in other departments acts. It's just the not fair to
1: her. Alan Moore is giving me his patented Alan Moore smirk as we're talking here. Alan Moore, poor
5: Secretary Sibelius. She had only three and a half years to get this done. She had enormous, she had tens of millions that turned into hundreds of millions of dollars of resources. Was she the one who should be sitting in a room making sure it worked? No, of course not. But she had incredible resources. This thing at the outset, though, was pulled from her, and it was and it was overseen in the White House by some very smart, very well-intentioned policy types who did not have a clue or an ounce of experience in putting something... Uh, of this nature together, the people at CMS, the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services, who had the day-to-day responsibility, were overwhelmed. Nobody could figure out how how to pass the word up the chain. Sebelius was in charge. She was given this mandate, and she had a duty to... Be on top of what was going on and, and let the president know in a timely way prior to October 1st of last year. We're not ready. And, and back then, that week, we said she cannot what, last. What,
1: what, wait a she we, cannot. Hold on last. a second.
4: All right, Denise, crap first. Go ahead. First of all, I've dizzed it out with multiple different agencies, and it's, it's not fun, it's nasty, and they can be downright obnoxious. So I, I'm not going to say that, you know, sit here and say, poor Secretary Sebelius. You're right. She was put in a position, and I can tell you, her life must have been a hell, because people don't play fair in the administration, and you know that, Alan. You were a Republican appointee, just like I was a Democrat appointee. I mean, it can be worse inside the administration than it can be outside of the administration.
1: But 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 Denise, let's also be honest, and I, I can't believe I'm going to do this as a, as a moderate Republican. I still am shocked I'm going to ask this question. But to me it seems like that Kathleen Sebelius, the secretary of HHS, got dealt a bad hand of cards. And even with all of her political prowess, even with all of her abilities, she still seemed to be directed by the White House and the administration to put forward. I mean, we're just talking about healthcare.gov and Obamacare. We haven't even talked about the fiascos of the religious organizations and birth control. She was put on the front line of that, and she took hits for that. It seems like the administration didn't do a good job of managing the issue rather than shoving it in her face. Is that accurate?
4: That's what it looks like to me. I mean, I can't tell you how many times the national security staff told us what we were supposed to say, and we would look at them and say, are you kidding me? We'll get slaughtered for it. And their response is, we're telling you what to say. And I'm thinking, A, hey, you're not even a political appointee, and you're putting us on the block to get our heads knocked off. And B, you don't even know what you're talking about. So I'd love to see some national security staffers also take the hit for this one. Congressman Al?
2: Well, let me approach this from a little bit different standpoint. <coughs> First of all, it is not at all unusual for a cabinet officer to leave after five years. That happens regularly without... True, true. Secondly, it has got to have been a very tough five years on her, and the fact that she may well have wanted out, and the fact that that coincided well with the political needs of the administration... Uh, I think that we can forget some of the conspiracy theories wrapped about this. Was she thrown out? I doubt it. I think uh, there was a discussion and, 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 she, and she, the, the idea came up and she grabbed well, it.
1: Congressman now let me ask this question, though. It, it seems to me that it was a little disingenuous by the Obama administration and by the President to do this massive Rose Garden victory lap of how great Obamacare was and then turn around and say okay literally less than 5 days after the victory lap she's she's out
5: and you're shocked by that
2: i am
1: i I'm a little shocked
5: by
2: that
1: mm-hmm. or Alan Moore first and Bob Hines Alan Moore well we don't
5: know precisely what happened uh, in that in, in that 5 day period and what she said on the weekend was look this i I chose the time, it was time. As Al said, people do tire out and they do leave, and we've had people who've already gotten tired and left. The problem in this case was after the disaster that the, that, that became the rollout and the all-hands-on-deck, multiple scramble, <laughs> tens of millions of dollars to redo the, the, the software that sh- should never have gotten to that point in the first place, You had people all over the Congress and elsewhere saying, somebody has to pay, she's going to be the one, because she's the cabinet-level member in charge. And no president likes to be pressured to get rid of somebody, but she she clearly was not on top of this. And for them to be surprised at the launch was unforgivable. I don't expect her to write code and do software, but for her to be in charge of something... This big and not to have a clue of how bad it was that alone it disqualifies her from keeping the job, but she stayed on it it wasn't like there was somebody standing right behind her who could step in and, and take over she's not incompetent by any stretch it's just that somebody had to pay now. The details we're going to have to read about in books down the road, unless somebody talks to, unless Edward Snowden's figured it out and passes it on to <laughs> the post the Glenn Greenwald.
3: Bob Hines? Well, here you go. Look, they got, they got their, quote, 7 million people signed up, whether they're paying their bills or not, their, their insurance, I don't know. But the fact of the matter is, once they got their number, she could, act, she could say, and the president could give her a, pat on the back and say, "Yeah, we have got it all done and it's a nice time to go." And, you know, she could go out at least on a she could say, "I did my job as best I could and I got it. I got I got it to the number we asked for." So, you know, you can say it's a success.
1: But now with, with with Sylvia Burwell, who was the acting who or still is acting, yeah. the acting director. She's not acting. Oh, she, she is the director. I'm sorry. Confirmed.
5: I kept saying Director of OMB yes, I confirmed unanimously not that long ago. Right. Good luck this time.
1: Well, th- that that's what I want to bring up is 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 Sylvia Burwell, who a lot of people I talked to in in Congress and in the administration has tremendous street credibility. She's well liked, and what I've heard out of the administration is that they are. Putting her up because of her successes at OMB to take over what some are seeing now is a fractured, damaged good in HHS. Is she really walking into a fire pit right now, and can she fix it? Al, Al Swift.
2: She is walking into a fire pit, which the Republicans will stoke. She is walking into a fire pit, in which the Democrats are going to be pouring water. Uh, she probably is going to be able to handle it uh, because I think, uh, I think the case on either side is a little hard to make. Uh, for example, I, I, I know Bob is absolutely convinced that Obamacare is a disaster from the beginning. He's expressed that in many ways uh, and logical ways here on the program. I don't agree with that. I think there's a very good chance that this will turn out just fine in the end. Uh, But in the meantime, it's going to be a huge political issue, and having somebody who can handle that pressure uh, is going to be important.
3: Bob Hines? Well, that's the important thing, because there are going to be more problems. Uh, Obviously, they don't have enough young people who have signed up. And they needed 40% according to their own numbers. It's probably closer to 25 to 30 somewhere in there. It was 24 the last time I saw a number. So the fact of the matter is there are going to be more problems. She's a very talented lady. Uh, but the, this bill is, is going to, it's, you know, I think eventually, you know, you know he's got another two, they've got another couple of years to, as long as the president's in, in, in office. To continue to do what they've been doing for the last several years, and that is every once in a while, by administrative fiat, fixing what they didn't fix to begin with, and they're going to keep doing that. And I expect it's going to be, continue to be an issue politically because there are so many things in the bill that don't work in the real world. And as long as they can continue to fix them, the bill is going to end. The law eventually will be probably pretty well an efficient job but right now it's a, it's
1: a work in progress but two and a d- half years after it was passed but denise you know it, it seems to me like the Obama administration literally is using omb as some sort of band-aid bullpen for hhs you know the president brought in jeff seitz uh who is also former omb uh to head the team uh to fix healthcare.gov Phil Shalero, uh, who was a legislative liaison, Phil Shalero came in, also was uh, instrumental in OMB. He came in and also was looking at this. And now you got Burwell. Is, is, is management and budget the right mentality that you need to fix the larger scale HHS?
4: Absolutely. I, I think it's a very smart choice uh, to make because OMB is going to understand everybody's equities. So it's not just HHSs. It'll be Treasury. It'll be Veterans Affairs. There are a lot of different equities that are in play here relating to Obamacare. And by bringing in people who understand those equities and who already have relationships with the other departments, those relationships will help them implement this at a, hopefully, um, at a better pace and one that is a little bit more organized.
5: Alan Moore, do you agree? Well, it, it, it seems to me that it, it's not about the, the OMB position, um, it's about who the person is. Uh, if, if you are running OMB, you've got a very, very, very big job in government. Some would argue it's it's right up there in, in one of the top four or five cabinet posts. And, might rank it above HHS, even though the HHS, HHS empire is so is so big and broad. I'm not. I don't mean to put that agency down at all. It's just that OMB is at the center of things relating to to, to where the how much money gets spent. on different different aspects of government. She, Sylvia Matthews Burwell, was a deputy director of OMB back in the Clinton administration. Then she spent about eight or nine years with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Then she went over to run the family foundation of the Walton family, the Walmart fortune. She's done a lot of impressive stuff. So when she came just last year to OMB, she'd been away from government for a long time, but was well thought of. She was confirmed unanimously. This time, they, they can't hang uh, Obamacare on her, but they're going to take a pound of, they're going to extract a pound of flesh in her hearings. And she'll, she's a smart woman, and she's already obviously off to a head start, <coughs> knowing quite a bit about it. My, my, so she's a perfectly good choice. I feel badly for OMB that they've got to, they've got to get another new person. And that's in some that that might even be more controversial than the Matthew than than, than mm-hmm. the Burwell well, appointment, uh, to appointment to appointment HHS because there's a little bit of a we wanted Sibelius to be gone she's gone. We like this person. Uh, John McCain and others have already said I intend to support her. I know her. I, I have great respect for her. That doesn't mean it'll just be by acclamation. <laughs> I'll have to come and and, and and get squeezed a little bit. But they can't they can't challenge her for bad judgment on on Obamacare. She's going to be there to make sure that the rollout continues to. To work and improve, and she has a lot of other responsibilities in that job besides public oh,
1: Around the horn, before we go to break here, real quick, uh, Congressman Al, start with you. Is Kathleen Sebelius? Is her legacy? Is, is it a legacy of politically damaged goods? Can she come back from this?
2: Uh, she could uh, in the future. <clears throat> in the future, uh, depending on uh, what she tried to come back as, I think it should be.
1: Is her political career done? Uh, it,
2: it would be hard. It would be very, very hard. But, but done, uh, she, she walked into this situation with an awful lot of respect. And uh, could she reclaim that? I wouldn't want to say a- absolutely no.
1: Bob Hines is civilian S- damaged goods, politically. She's, she's damaged just
3: because she was in the seat that was exploding all over the place. But it's. And it, I mean, you know,
1: we're talking about a very, very popular governor yeah. out of Kansas. She's a good job,
3: and she's 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 got, got a lot of talent. She's got a, she's smart. Uh, she's uh, she's not young, and she may not want any more political activity. You know, jobs. But right. the fact of the matter is, you know, she 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 was dealt a real bad hand to begin with, and it wasn't her fault. Right.
1: Denise, Krapp.
4: I don't think she's done. Uh, no, I, 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 she was dealt an awful hand but there are a lot of things that people can learn from her and it's, I'm betting that she goes out and she starts talking with different groups about lessons learned uh, vis-a-vis the healthcare but also vis-a-vis how to be a strong female in the political uh, environment and, and that's going to be one of the best benefits that she can give to the new generation of leaders
5: Alan Moore well she was dealt a bad hand and she didn't play it very well so uh, she is damaged goods. Her future? Who knows? And this,
1: you know, in, in this she'll become a board. Age, ma- she'll become a
5: board member at Blue Cross Blue I'm, Shield. I think Denise <laughs> is onto something, though. About does she? Does she really want to get back into politics to do what? I don't think she wants to go back and run for office. And she'd pop- she's had a very senior cabinet post. She's not going to get one of the others. She's not going to move up to Treasury or State or become Attorney General. So. Each Does she run for probably, Senate out of Kansas? I don't think no. so. They're, you know, people who wants to go be a member of the Senate after you've been a governor and a cabinet member and at, at, at her at, at her stage, she's probably going to go become a university president, a foundation president, make a lot yeah. more money, have a lot more there relaxation, go. go around, write her book, give speeches, and,
1: right. and be happy, and be happy, you know, and sleep enough. better, sleep better at night. There we go. All right, uh, we're going to take a break. When we come back. We've got a very special guest. He is the New York Times best-selling author of Rawhide Down, the definitive account of the Reagan assassination attempt back in the 1980s. And he is the Bloomberg justice correspondent. Del Weaver will join us in the next hour. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We're going to order our drinks, cut our cigars. It's happy hour here at Backroom Politics. Stay with us. We'll be back in four minutes. Happy Hour on Backroom Politics is sponsored by Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., America's premier cigar tavern. Stay with us as the round table continues after we order our drinks, order our cigars and get ready for the second hour of backroom politics. Stay with us. We'll be back in 2 minutes. live in Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. This is Back Politics Live on Block Talk Radio. Joining us now uh, to talk about his best-selling book, he is New York Times' best-selling author and Bloomberg Media's journalist for justice and uh, and public safety issues. He is the author and journalist, Del Weaver. Del, how you doing? Good, how are you doing? Ah, thanks, for ha- thanks for coming on, first of all. Oh, sure. Uh, we're here to talk about uh, your book, Rahai Dam, which is in large part talking to some folks that have read the book, the, pre, the preeminent book on the entire story about the assassination attempt on uh, President Reagan outside the Washington Hilton back in 1982. Uh, first of all, you know, you're a journalist at Bloomberg. What compelled you to write this book? Right, well, it actually starts, um, I was at the Washington
6: Post at the time. I uh-huh. was at the Post for 10 years. And um, I was covering the federal courts, a little closer. Um, I was covering the federal courts, and Hinckley, we all know John Hinkley, mm-hmm. in, on March 30, 1981, shot President Ronald Reagan outside the Washington Hotel. He was found not guilty by reason of insanity. Um, and then he gets put in St. Elizabeth Hospital ever since. But Which is now DHS headquarters, and ironically. Oh, <laughs> <and, laughs> the insanity. Um, and so he uh, is over there, but he gets... Uh, he wants visits, he wants to get out of this hospital. The, his Lawyers are petitioning the court to give him more freedom from the hospital, and I am covering these hearings in federal court. And I'm like 15 feet from this guy. And he shows, it was so eerie, You're 15 feet, and at the moment at that time I thought, I'm 15 feet away from a guy I thought changed history, or almost changed history. I was 15 feet away from a guy I thought almost changed history. And it was so bizarre, this hearing. They're talking about his sex life, the girlfriends he had, all this interesting stuff. They he showed no emotion. It was like someone had taken a mask of his sleeping face the night before, and he put it on. It was just flat effect, and it just stuck with me. I'm like, that's so interesting. I'm so close. Then about a month later, I get a call. I get summoned to the FBI Washington field office. The director of the office, Joe Persiccini, summons me. We need to talk right now. We need you to stop working on this investigative story you're doing about a totally unrelated matter, D.C., Ethiopian taxi cab drivers bribing D.C. officials, right? We need you to do it. I heard about it. Type right. three wiretaps. stuff. can't write this story. I come over. We're sitting at his conference table. And he's like, don't do this story. You're going to wreck our case. You're going to mess it up. I'm like, okay, okay, I get it. I'll let you go with the case. I won't report it anymore. But we talk about it. And, um, and, uh, we t- we, and I agree not to kind of write about it right now. He goes, okay. He gets up from the conference table. And, and partly, I wasn't interested in the story, because let's be honest, in D.C., you know, corruption, man bites dog, dog bites man. Right. Ethiopian taxi cab drivers bribing D.C. officials is kind of like a dog bites man kind of story. Right, now. right. So it's not a surprise. <laughs> and so he gets up from the conference table, goes over to his desk. I hear him rummage through a drawer, and he comes over. And he slaps something heavy in my hand. And I look down, it's a gun. I go, holy, you really don't want me to write this story, do you? And he goes, that's Hinckley's gun. I'm like, what's John really? yeah, Yes, I was cool. like, what's John That's Hinckley's cool. gun doing in your desk drawer? This shouldn't be in a museum. I mean, you can't in DC. for Your listeners not in DC. Yeah. You walk out the Shelleys, you're going to run into a museum. Right. Okay. They're everywhere. How can right. you not find a museum for this? Right. And so it got me really curious. I went to the library to try to find a book on this event. Now I'm really curious. I'm not the brightest bulb, but I'm not as dumb as a rock. And I've now had two like moments in time with this fantastically interesting tale, and I. And I, I wanted to explore more. Go to the library, not a single book on the day. So then I call the guy on the book jacket, this dude right here, Jerry Parr. Right. He's an agent who I will discover saved Reagan's life not only once on March 30th, 1981, but twice. twice. So I go to interview Jerry Parr. Right. Jerry Parr, I didn't think he'd talk to me. Secret Service, tight-lipped. Right. right. Oh, my God, you could not get Jerry hard to stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> By the end, I knew I had a great book. Okay. And sometimes I think it helps if I set the scene to March 3, 1981, a day much like today in Washington, dreary, cloudy, course, rainy, Right. to set up why I think this day not only was as significant to history as if the assassination attempt had actually gone, had actually worked, but also to talk about how it transformed Reagan's presidency and catapulted it forward. It recalibrated everything.
1: So let's go back to that day. Um, President Reagan is giving an address at the Washington Hilton. It was supposed to be just a rudimentary movement of his Secret Service codename at the time was Rawhide. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was supposed to be a rudimentary movement for Rawhide from the Washington Hilton back to uh, the White House. And there had not been any indication that there was going to be an attempt on the president's life. Uh, At some point... It happened so instantaneously. What did you discover in writing the book as to just, I mean, we're, we're going to get into the larger chaos, but the chaos there on the scene as it happened, what did you find?
6: Right. Well, so this is March 3, 1981. The president, as you said, is delivering this kind of routine address to the AFL-CIO. Mm-hmm. He's delivering this address. It's 2.27 p.m. He's walking out of the hotel. Now, we've all seen the Washington Hotel at this table. Right. People now know it's a really neat hotel built in the 1950s and 60s, and it was, they designed it on the premise they wanted the president to come to help them fill their majestic ballroom. Right. So they put a special entrance on the side of the hotel called the VIP entrance just for the president, but they did not consult the Secret Service on the design of the driveway leading to that entrance. Right. It was too narrow for the 13,000-pound limousine known as stage Right. So they dropped the president off. They can't leave the limousine there for a bunch of reasons. They have to back it up pointing out towards the T Street. So the president, when he leaves the hotel, he's dropped off. When he's dropped off, he's dropped up at the door. But when he leaves the hotel through the VIP entrance, he has to walk out the driveway 35 feet to the door of the limousine. Because they couldn't leave it in front. Otherwise, we would get caught in the curb, caught in crossfire. This was the compromise they made for security. He walks out of the hotel, 2.27 p.m. He's heading towards the limousine. He doesn't know that 15 feet from him behind a rope line, unsecured rope line, no magnetometers, is John W. Hinckley Jr. John W. Hinckley Jr. was on his way transiting from Los Angeles, where he made one last failed attempt to be a songwriter, not a very good one, Right. Across the country through D.C. on his way to New Haven, Connecticut, where he wanted to kill the object of his obsession, Jodie Foster. Mm-hmm. He was obsessed with this woman since 1976 in a movie Taxi Driver. Mm-hmm. He wakes up that morning, he had stalked President Carter before. He thought killing President Carter in October 1980 would endear him to Jody Foster. He went to the, an event with uh, Carter in 1980, went to an event with Carter in 1980, in Dayton, Ohio, but he left his guns at the bus depot. He, mm-hmm. he got within arm's reach of the president. By the way, Jerry Parr was on Carter's left shoulder at that very event. Wow. So, we're here, 1981, March 30th. Reagan finishes this kind of speech. It's a pretty good speech. He actually rewrote that speech by hand. For anyone who thinks Ronald Reagan didn't write his own speeches, I found the rewritten draft in the archives, the oh, wow. Archives. He walks out. He walks out. He's heading towards this limousine. Behind the rope is John Hinckley. John Hinckley the, that morning had woken up in his crappy hotel, opened the newspaper, the Washington Star, and seen on page A4 the president's going to be at the Hilton at 2 p.m. I'm going to take my little gun, 22 caliber revolver, head to the hotel and see how close I can get. 15 feet, the distance of a free throw. Go shoot a free throw. That's how close John Hinckley was to the president of the United States. Reagan approaches. John Hinckley pulls out his gun. He unleashes six shots in 1.7 seconds. 1.7 seconds is the time it takes me to say 1.7 seconds. Right. First shot hits Jim Brady in the head. Second shot hits Tom Del Dante, a D.C. police officer in the back. By then, Jerry Parr, 50-year-old Secret Service agent, head of the White House detail, wasn't even supposed to be there that day. Right. Jerry Parr had asked another agent, let me get close to the president this day. I don't know him very well. He wasn't even supposed to be there grabs the president in four-tenths of a second, faster than you can process it, and starts shoving the seven-year-old president towards that open limousine door. Right. The third shot goes high. We're not surprised the third shot went high, because Hinckley, though, he took a ton of target practice, only at stationary targets. Right. Four shot. Hits Tim McCarthy, secret service agent, swiveled to take the bullet, not wearing a bulletproof vest, he's shot in the chest as Reagan and Tarr flash behind him. But this shot, this is an interesting 1972 Lincoln Continental. the doors open backwards. Mm-hmm. They flash behind the door, the bullet hits the armored window as they flash behind it. The stick shot cracks across the driveway. Only later they realize that that bullet snapped off the side quarter panel of the limousine slipped through a gap two and a half inches wide between the door and the door frame and hit Reagan five inches below his left armpit as they tumbled in the car. The door slams shut. The driver of the limousine slams down the gas praying to God he doesn't run over his friend Tim McCarthy because he will crush him to death. 13,000 pound limousine. And in the bat. put yourself in this limousine at this moment. It's utterly silent. There's no noise because there's so much armor. You can't hear anything. Jerry Parr looks out. The screaming people, he can't hear. He's in this limousine, looks down the street, sees three men on the cement, a bullet hole in the window. He knows there's been an assassination attempt. And they're taking off like a bat out of hell, flying down this street. They barely miss hitting a woman pushing a stroller across the street. Right. Pivot on to Connecticut Avenue. They're heading down Connecticut Avenue. Reagan props up Reagan in the backseat runs his hands up and down his side, checks him out. Reagan says, I think I'm okay, but I think he hurt my rib, throwing me in the car. And, 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 and Parr's like, oh, okay, but he's okay. All right, we're heading back to Crown. We're heading back to Crown. The code name for the White House. He's on his radio and says, hmm Parr, 30 seconds later, Reagan's entire presidency changes. And 30 seconds later, Jerry Parr looks over at Reagan, realizes the president's in a great deal of distress. Great frothy blood is on his lips. He's dabbing it with a napkin he'd taken from the hotel. Right. It's all blood.
5: goes this is trouble.
6: What do I do? If there's an actual assassination attempt, like this could be like a decapitation strike. At this moment in history, Cold War, height of the Cold War, secret documents, which I've seen now, which are declassified, moving across the top officials in the United States government about imminent, imminent Soviet military intervention in Poland. Is this a decapitation strike? Is there another guy waiting for us at the hospital? What do I do? They have a medical facility at the White House. The most secure building in the free world, the White House. Jerry Parr looks at the president, realizes he's in distress, he's having a hard time breathing, he's like, he broke this little, you got to go to the hospital. He makes that split-second decision. They detour from the White House to the hospital. They get to the hospital three minutes, three minutes after the shoot. Reagan insists on walking inside. Parr thinks, ah, you want to be a cowboy, huh? Reagan hitches up his pants. Michael Deaver and his body man pull up in a car right behind him. And they see him get up. The body man's like, oh, wow, whew, he looks good. He hitched up his pants. That's the Reagan I know, right? Deaver is not so sanguine. He thinks, oh, my God, he does not look so good. Reagan insists on walking inside the hospital. He gets in about 20 feet, collapses like a dead weight into the arms of his agents. I interviewed a paramedic who was right there saw all this happening. Paramedic said, Dell, I saw the president's eyes roll in the back of his head, and I thought he was code city, meaning he's going to die. Mm-hmm. They rush him over to the trauma bay. They throw him on the trauma bay. A nurse, they, they this suit, they've cut off this brand new suit. His brand new suit given to by Nancy Reagan. Mm-hmm. Not a good idea to cut off a brand new suit given to you by Nancy Reagan. <laughs> they cut that thing right off. Right. It's gone. He's naked on the table. A nurse, Wendy Koenig, is trying to get his blood pressure. She can't detect it. She begins to sob. His blood pressure is so low. He's a 70-year-old man. Remember right. this. Can't get his blood pressure. It's so low. She starts to cry. The last time, and she has a flashback to the one time she ever saw her father cry. When she came home 20. on November twenty-second, 1963, right. and saw her father. So her. Let, me ask, let me ask you. When, when don't we
5: stop it. No, uh, no, no Okay. <laughs> <laughs> keep, going. okay
6: no, no, keep, keep going. Keep going.
0: Okay. All right, all right.
6: So they're in the trauma bay, and they're trying to resuscitate him. Everyone's doing their jobs. This is like the height. This is the beginning of great trauma care in the, States, in, in the United States. In 1970s, 1970s, you had a better chance of surviving a bullet wound in Vietnam than you did on the streets of D.C., better chance. But they've reinstituted how they did trauma care at, at GW Hospital. And they made it, like, everyone has a job. Everyone's doing something. She's trying to get his blood pressure. She finally gets it. It's 60. By the way, anything under 90, 90s he is screwed. They think he's going to die. I didn't interview a single person who treated the president at that moment who thought he would. This technician threads a three-foot-long IV line from Reagan's right elbow all the way to his heart, so they get better measurements on pressure and get fluids to the heart quickly. And she is checking this. Only then does she look up. She does her job. She looks up and goes, oh, what are all these guys here with Uzis in the earpieces? And she looks down and sees it's Reagan. <gasps> she can't concentrate. She turns around, gets smelling salts off the shelf and does it to focus. They do their jobs. They're pumping it. They're doing everything. They, t- they pump them full of fluids. They get his blood pressure up. They stabilize him. But they still don't know what's wrong with him. Finally, a Vietnam vet comes in. He had actually been an intern doing like some anesthesiology thing. Right. Totally... But he had been a helicopter pilot in Vietnam and had crashed and been beat up and shot and all kinds right. of stuff. Right. He walks up and sees a tiny little slit right inside. And if you have a dime, this, the bullet got flattened into the... Pretend this is a dime. The bullet gets flattened into the shape of a dime and hits him edgewise so there's no blood. But it hits a rib and tumbles end over end through the lung, chewing up arteries and tissue, and just bleeding like crazy. They know he's been shot. The guy was, I think that's a bullet wound. They go, oh, my God, it's a bullet wound. A doctor... Checks his lungs, you know, hits this ho- the ho- the right side hollow, like a drum. Right. The left side solid. solid. It Means it's filled with blood. No. They decide we got to do a chest tube. They insert a chest tube. Drain blood. Chest tube. A chest tube. A tube right into the chest. to okay. Drain the blood. To relieve the pressure. That usually solves everything. Right. You get shot in the chest. Ninety percent of the time they don't remove the bullet. They leave it there. They just remove because it it's already sterilized when it hits you. So they, they, blood drains, and it drains, and it drains, and it drains. It doesn't stop. On this day, 7-year-old Ronald Reagan would lose more than 50% of his total blood volume. Good Lord. Yep. 70 years old. And medical texts, by the way, ER texts, blood pressure lower than 60, shooting victim, his age, that much blood loss, more than a 50% chance you will, you will not make it. Wow. Yeah. So they have a decision to make. What do they do? They take him to surgery. We, gotta, we stop bleeding and stabilize him, We're going to get this bullet. We have to find this bullet. They're in surgery. And I'm not, you know, the book, it's a nonfiction book, so I don't don't kill Reagan in the book. Um, But um, they're in surgery. And, and like, that's a really dramatic tale that I've related, right? It's really cool. A lot of people don't know that story. For me, the moment when I'm reporting this book, I interviewed more than 125 people read all these documents. The moment for me that it was a true, like, reporting process that I really fell in love with, was when I tracked down Dr. David Adelberg. Dr. David Adelberg was a 31-year-old surgical intern on March 30th, 1981. Nobody. He woke up that morning to do gallbladder surgery. Well, he gets roped into Reagan surgery, right? Because the doctor, the main surgeon, the Navy guy, named Ben Aaron, wanted his normal team. No VIP treatment. Everyone was trying to go, I'm on to this. Like, oh, the president. No, no, I want my normal team. And as Ben Aaron is in Reagan's chest hunting frantically for that bullet, worried it's going to slip into an artery and kill the president, shoot in his brain and kill him, 31-year-old Dr. David Albert reached his hand in the president's chest, gently tucked the president's beating heart in his hand, and nestled it aside. In a room surrounded by armed secret service agents ready to pounce at the slightest misstep, an unscreened 31-year-old surgical intern literally held the beating life of the president in his hand.
1: That is truly oh. an amazing story. That's got to be some of the best radio we've had so on this amazing. show. Found. They find the bullet, the bullet. They find the bullet to take it
6: out. And it's an inch from Reagan's heart. Wow. Oh. Now, I'd like to say that Ronald Reagan's life literally hung the balance of a split second, a split second decision and a mere inch. If Jerry pars a split second slow, Reagan's a sitting duck. If he's a split second slow, the trajectory of the bullet hits Reagan in the head. Wow. Split-second decision. If Jerry Parr goes to the White House, not the hospital,
3: Reagan, Reagan
6: dies. dies. And one inch, <laughs> how close it was to the president's heart, hits his heart, and he dies. So,
1: I mean, oh. let, let, let's be honest. I mean, the, the mm-hmm. trauma care that day, I mean, because we remember oh. the chaos, those of us, and, and, and those around the table, for those of oh. you who can wow. hear the mumbling, it, that is a tremendous story. Oh, when, let me ask you, when, when you were writing this book, uh, the Reagan family... The Reagan Library tends to be very guarded about, uh, talk about the day, that day in 1981. They haven't been very open about it. <clears throat> the, the reality is, how open were they when you were writing this book? Did you get a lot of cooperation from the Reagan administration? Oh.
6: Well, Nancy Reagan, um, you know, like my cigar
5: real quick.
1: Well, that's what we do yeah. here on Backroom Politics. Yeah, that's <laughs> all I need to do here. No, just uh. it, pull it down. Pull it down. There we go. While you're lighting this cigar, let me see. I think you should make a a CD of this. Oh, no, no. We're going to keep this one. We're going to keep this one. So, uh, okay. So, so, all right. So, so, Reagan Library, they were (laughs)
5: super helpful.
1: You know, the archive has
6: all this material. Like I said, I found his handwritten draft of that speech. Mm -hmm. You know, he did that by hand. You know, people think Reagan was this kind of like bumbling guy. But he made that speech so much better, had a good flow of sentences. Um, They also let me see, in this day, well, I said it recalibrated Reagan's presidency. I do not exaggerate. So, Reagan, at this point in time, many people don't remember, had the lowest approval rating of any president that early in his first term. Right. Bottom. Al Hay, like a, the, the stuff down in El Salvador, the Russians, the economy's stunned. nothing's going well. Here it is. The, everything's tanked, and our president just got shot. The last four presidents who were shot in office all died. Here's Ronald Reagan, shot. And What do we learn about Ronald Reagan? My argument is that... We are always looking for that unscripted moment, that moment where we get true insight into our leaders, right? Right. Because everything's so horribly scripted today. You know, it, it, it. all right, at 2.27 p.m., March 3, 1981, the script gets tossed out the window. There's no more script. Right. What do we learn about Ronald Reagan? His wife comes into the emergency room. Nancy. They obviously love each other. Passionate love story. She comes in and looks at him. What Reagan says is, honey, I forgot to duck. And immediately funny, right? Funny line, Bart, Jack Dempsey, he had this memory of that. But what does that tell us about Ronald Reagan? He cared more about his wife's feelings than his own. Right. He's a brave guy. All right, He gets wheeled into surgery. He sees his three top aides. Who's minding the store? Right. We wish someone had been. Al hey, we're, well, we're going <laughs> to get to that. We're going to get to that." <laughs> then he gets wheeled into surgery. He's in surgery, and he looks up around the guys around him and says, "I hope you're all Republicans." <laughs> yeah. Right. He goes back down and gets put to sleep. And these words get out to the public, and it's unscripted, and we realize, oh my gosh, this is the guy we want to be president at this time. We have sympathy for him. Obviously, he's been shot, but he built this bond through his heroism and just being a stoic guy that we view ourselves as Americans, right? And I think that was all incredibly important, and it built a bond with the American people that David Broder told me before he passed away. He's like, Bill, you don't understand that the bond that he built the American people on this day never wavered. His approval weight went down, of course. up and down. Right. But he didn't get indicted, he didn't get impeached right. in a grand contract would have wrecked a lot of presidencies. Right. And it's because
1: people had this goodwill for him. When from this day when when we when we look back at that death and, and we look at the chaos surrounding the events of the actual shooting of the president, there were a lot of people involved in uh in in getting the president taken care of. But it was the people around him. There seemed to be a lot of confusion that day. Obviously, the, there's going to be a lot of confusion when the president shot. However, you had George Bush, then vice president, out of town, en route, on Air Force Two at the time. Was there, how bad was the chaos in trying to get the word back to the next in line for an incapacitated president? To George Bush, how did you find that out, and what did you find?
6: Oh, you know, you raise a really good point there. You so, get by Al Haig. All right. Well, all right. we're going to
1: talk about Al Haig. Gotcha.
6: All right. So, um, he, so Bush is politicking in Texas. Right. He's flying back from Texas. Or well, he's actually still in Texas, but we hears this happening. They fly to Texas. They fly back. I didn't realize this, but Air Force Two, even back in 1981, did not have secure voice communication. Right. And so they couldn't really talk to the White House what was going on. It was so insecure. In fact, I tracked down two University of Alabama graduate students who listened in to all the communications on their ham radio sets. Wow. Pretty cool, right? (laughs) And so, like, they're texting, like, through the, you know, the text, the telex things Uh to him and messages about what happened. And Bush, this was a great moment for Bush, too. And the reason is, like, I really kind of liked him in this moment because he's, like, he took notes. He wrote all these notes down. And I tracked down this guy on the plane, and Bush recognized this was a historic moment he did an interview with his staffer who wrote it all out. Everything he said, what he's going through at that moment, what it was like on the plane. And Bush said, you know, one of the things he said was like, he and Reagan, he admitted, had this contentious relationship up until this point. And he said, you know, I hope someone's holding Nancy Reagan's hand. Now, that's what went through Bush's mind. He's coming back and he says, I'm not going to land. They wanted him to helicopter from Andrews to the White House to be there fast. He said, no, no, no. Only the president lands on the south lawn. I'm going to fly to the observatory and be driven there. And that, like, that built a bond, too, with Reagan's people who were very kind of weary. Like, we know that Jim Baker, Bush's guy, was Reagan's chief of staff. Again, showing how secure Reagan was as a guy. Like, I can have my former nemesis guy as my chief of staff. And this reminds me of a great moment in the book. Not the book, but, like, in history. All right. So you're talking about presidential incapacitation. Right. 25th Amendment passed. Um, you could replace an incapacitated president with the vice president if everyone in the cabinet agrees, and they send a letter right. to the Hill and all that. All right. All right. They're debating this. Ed Meese, Jim Baker, the two top guys in in, in Reagan's life, next to De- with Deaver, right, in the White House, the counselor, chief of staff, have a debate about whether they should invoke the 25th Amendment in a janitor's closet at the hospital. Really? They're in a janitor's closet, going, Do we do this or not? What do we do? The president's unconscious. We've never confronted this before. They don't want to send the message to the world that the 70-year-old president is too old. They don't want to make it look like he's hurt. But at the same time, they're two Soviet subs
1: two minutes closer to being able to lob a warhead on Washington than normal. How close, how close were they, in your findings in the book, were they to invoking the 25th Amendment? Yeah, they,
6: were, they were close, but Baker and, um, and some others on his team would not have it.
0: Uh, I interviewed Fred
6: Fielding. Dick Darwin, that's right. Right. He took the documents. Fred Fielding thinks they should have. They should have invoked it. Still to this day. To the, well, now he does. At the time, they did. But right. now he's like, looking back, I think we should have invoked
5: it. What, what, was but it... But he was with Hague. No, no,
6: Fielding, Fielding was in the sit room.
5: Okay. I so, got not the situation. But, but let's... But, but I think oh, Hague, wasn't Hague,
1: right. Wasn't Hague there? Hague was in the sit room. I'm sorry, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, I thought yeah, you yeah. said yeah. with with. No, 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 right, no, no. So was let's, was, let's go back Brain fart. So my question goes back to... If they were that close mm-hmm. okay and and apparently in your book you you disclose the fact that there was an active discussion to invoke the 25th amendment yep. uh and they obviously could not consult bush on this subject as he was in an unsecured aircraft mm-hmm. somewhere what in could we have done
4: exactly <laughs> when <Well,
1: laughs> he couldn't do anything this this leads to the situation in the white house press room uh Before we get to Al Haig's press room discovery, Al Haig and several of the key cabinet members or or key administrative staff at the White House for Reagan at the time are in the situation Situation room room. getting briefed by the director of Secret Service and the medical team. Uh, Treasury Secretary. Treasury Secretary, Mm -hmm. correct. What is the mentality and what's the thought process going through in the situation Mm -hmm. room at the time? All
6: right. I had great insight into this because we know the situation room is one of the most secure rooms in the U.S. government, right? Mm -hmm. And we've all seen the iconic picture of when they took out Osama bin Laden, and there's that, the picture of the compound in front of Hillary Clinton in that picture. And if you look at it, they've gone into the picture, into that map that she had of the compound, and pixelated it, right. so our enemies can't tell the resolution of our spy. Right. That room's that secure. Right. Dick Allen, the National Security Advisor, walked into that room with a tape recorder, and hit record, and it ran for four and a half hours, and he let me have those tapes. What did you find in those tapes? They're amazing documentary history of the fights going on, how Haig really did not understand presidential succession. He'd bungled it a couple times. Casper Weinberger gets in a fight with him and screws up the DEFCON levels. He's like, oh, we should go to DEFCON 2, meaning let's tone it down so we're not going to scare the country. Uh, DEFCON 2, uh, no, no. He thought they were on DEFCON 2. Right. No, no, no. DEFCON 2 is like right next One to the button. Right. No, no, they were on DEFCON 4. And like, it was so fascinating to see this like back and forth, and you can hear on the tapes, like, like Haig wanted control of everything. He's like, we're going to run everything by me. We're not going to talk to me or do this. And he looks up at the TV, and he sees Larry Speaks, who come back from the hospital answering questions and bungling it. I mean, the guy was like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Maybe the press knew more than, than Speaks did. Right. Man, and that's, like, two, re- two things go through Dick Allen's mind at this moment and David Gergen's mind who was there. One, um, it's much worse to look like you're hiding something. No, it's much worse to look incompetent than if you're hiding something. He looked up. The government didn't know. How do you not know? We have the Soviets about to attack. What do we do? And so Al Haig says, i got to solve this. He runs upstairs, grabs Dick Allen. They're heading up the thing. Dick's like, where are we going? Speaks is making a mess of this. we got to go fix this. And Dick's like, wait, wait, wait. Al Al Haig gets on the podium. And Dick Allen, this is going through the mind of the national security director, the national security advisor at this moment in U.S. history. National security advisor, this is what goes through his head. Al Haig's legs are shaking. Because, you know, he had this heart quadruple bypass like a year earlier. Right. He's, his ring, his west point ring, is clacking against the podium. He's shaking. And Dick Allen goes, oh, my God, he's going to collapse. If he collapses, do I drag the Secretary of State off the stage and continue the briefing myself, or do I summon help?
1: We've got, wow. to, go, wow. the world. We've got to go to break. Can you stay for another sure. segment? Sure. Okay, we're, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue our discussion about Raw down the best-selling book on the New York Times bestseller list with its author, best-selling author, uh, Del Weaver. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us for this fascinating segment. We'll be back. You know, you hear us talk about Shelley's back room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. it being the place to be. America's Premier Cigar Tavern, place to make new friends or visit old friends. Or even have a lively political discussion like we do here on Backroom Politics. But what you may not know, Shelley's is the place for private parties. Shelley's Backroom is available to host events for groups of 10 to 250. From cocktail receptions to sit-down dinners, Shelley's can provide custom menu options to suit your needs and budget. Although Shelley's is a smoke-friendly environment, Shelly's can make combinations for non-smokers based on the side of your party, but heck, why would you want to? With a cigar menu like they have here, why would you even consider going smoke-free? Event pricing varies based on the time of the day of the week chosen for your event. For more information on private parties at Shelley's Back Room, go to www.shellysbackroom.com slash private-party. Shelly's Back Room, the place to be, as Bob likes to say it. It's also the place for private parties. We're back here live at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Joining us for a second segment is best-selling New York Times author uh, Del Weaver, who is the author of Rawhide Down, the preeminent book about the assassination attempt on then-president Ronald Reagan. Uh, Dell, when we went to break, we talked about Al Haig and and his infamous press room uh, <laughs> appearance. Where, what compelled Al Haig? to go up to the press room, address an already rabid, chaotic <laughs> meeting right? yes. after a, a botched Devers press issue. What uh, compelled, be, uh, I'm no, no, sorry. sorry. Speaks. I'm sorry. Larry Speaks. I'm sorry. Larry Speaks botches it. What compelled Al Haig to actually go up there and say, I am in charge?
6: All right. Um, so Al Haig had seen Speaks on TV down there. Mm-hmm. And he got concerned that he wanted one message going through and it had... To, they had spent on these tapes, I could hear um, them spending 20 minutes on a simple message, like mm-hmm. to the foreign government, and they wanted it to be very calibrated, even though they didn't want to say anything. Well, he runs upstairs to do this, and he gets up there, and, you know, no, Nick that, Allen, as we said... That,
2: incidentally, does not seem to me to be a bad idea. No, it was a good idea. No.
6: They were trying to be very careful, and Speaks as wrecking their plan, according to Al Haig, right? But Al Hick had said, no one's talking media unless we all agree, and he ignores that, runs upstairs, right, because he's Al Hick. He gets up there... And he screws up. He screws up presidential succession. He goes, as of now, I am in control here. As you all know, because the president, vice president, secretary of state in that order, vice president's on his way back. I'm in close communication with him, which, frankly, was not exactly true because he couldn't really talk to the vice president. And, and, and Dick Allen, in his mind, stand, there's this great New York Times photo of Allen standing stoically. I asked Allen, Allen about it. He's like, oh, my God, through my mind. I'm like, did he really just mess that up? That cannot be. He really doesn't know what he's talking about. How can this be the guy, Al Haig, was Ford's chief of staff? So this brings he, up a... He, he negotiated Ford...
1: I'm sorry, he was Nixon's he, chief of Nixon staff, right? and he negotiated Ford's takeover. So, Dell, this brings up a good question. When we talk about session, the secession, the one name it. that we don't talk about in this whole yeah. deal is Tip O'Neill, the actual yep. person who would succeed... In the line of succession, yes. according to the Constitution, what is Tip O'Neill? Did you actually get an insight as to Tip O'Neill and his reaction to all this, and what was his role in that first three, four hours after the shooting? Well,
6: they, they the White House dispatched Secret Service protection, although they don't really need it at Capitol Police, and they just kept them informed. They were briefing them constantly. They were not going to let Tip O'Neill take the reins of government. You know what I mean? And th- they hadn't invoked the Twenty-fifth Amendment or any succession yet. And so Tip O'Neill didn't do anything, but that reminds me of like, one of the most poignant moments in this whole thing. So we know Reagan lives, and he issues more quips when he's at the, in the recovery room to his nurses like, all in all, I'd rather be in Philadelphia. These are handwritten notes to the Reagan Library. Right. Um, take me to L.A. where I can see the air I'm breathing. Can we shoot the scene over again, starting at the hotel?
0: <laughs> and, you know,
6: this endears people to Reagan, right? right. So um, April 7th, the first person... The administration allows to see Reagan, who's not a friend, family member, close confidant, is Tip O'Neill. Remember, these are combatants, but they're kind of buddies, but combatants. And Tip O'Neill goes into this room, sees the president, gets down on a knee, gently rubs the president's head, and they both recite the 23rd Psalm, and they both cry. And I often, I, you know, a lot of audience, I go, can you see that happening today? And I kind of joke, I'm like, well. Stainer would already be crying before he went in the room. You know. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, but like, but you know, but like, it, just, it was one of those moments like where these, like this bonding moment between them, I think. Yeah. Um, and we were talking earlier about like, you know, Jim Brady, sometimes he gets lost in this because he really did almost die. Right. And um, there's a moment, I interviewed this nurse, and it's the next day, and um, Reagan finds out Brady is really badly hurt. He's just devastated by it. But he has another funny quip where he's like, um, "You know, so so who did this?" And the aide is like, "Oh, it's just some nutbag, Mr. President, just a nutcase you did it." Rings. Like, oh, that's too bad. I was kind of hoping to be the KGB.
5: <laughs> <laughs> then again,
6: they wouldn't have missed you. They wouldn't have missed <laughs> And and also like in terms of Reagan's presidency, like how it recalibrated things. Um, you know you know, the notes were helpful, all those things, I think all those things were really
1: kind of helpful. Now, you know, we, we go back and we look at the press coverage that day, you know, and this is a time where we had, uh, we, where we had three news agencies, ABC, mm-hmm. NBC, CBS, and those of us who are watching uh, NBC, or ABC at the time, uh, remember just the lack of coordination of information being put out by the White House, the hospital and just bad media coverage to the point where ABC News announces that the president has died and then we see and I can't remember who the anchorman was at the time on
5: it was it was CBS who
1: announced it but Brady Brady had died but but, uh, it was there was an ABC um, wasn't Harry Reasoner but it was another ABC anchor who started yelling on the air why can't we get good information and had a meltdown on the air Looking back at that day today, was was there just so much chaos? At least getting information out to the media, were there were there media regrets or were there administration regrets about the lack of coordinated flow of Definitely. information to the American public? Definitely, and they talked about that after, and they did all these after action reports on how to do things better,
6: and what people did. Mm-hmm. Um, they recognized that you know maybe uh, Baker or me should have been back at the White House that whole time, you know, yeah. to control things. Um, yeah. You know, could've. and like, for example, like, uh, we were talking at the break about how, you know, the world said Jim Brady died. CBS mm-hmm. news. And it was really sad. Um, so what happens is they're in the Situation Room, and Donald Reagan, the, the Treasury's then the Treasury Secretary gets handed this note uh, from a Secret right. Service station. On it's written, it's Brady's dead. And he hands the note to Dick Allen. He looks at it. And the room, like, you can hear Dick Allen, like, cough, like, because he's friends. These are, this is like, this isn't just the presence of an esoteric exercise for them. When Fred Fielding left the White House that night, the last person, the only card left in the driveway of the White House was Jim Brady's Jeep Wrangler, and that's when Fred Fielding broke down crying. You know, this was real. The real thing to them. And th- so Dick Allen says, we need a moment of silence. You know, Jim Brady's dead. And the room in the situation goes hushed. And I timed it for seven seconds. That's all the time they could spare Jim Brady. Then they go back to work. And word filters out from here all over the place that Jim Brady's dead. Meanwhile, they start reporting, CBS radio, CBS news, all these things, Jim Brady's dead. And they go, they're in surgery. Uh, Art Cobreen this kind of like total alpha male neurosurgeon's working on Brady, and a doctor comes in, or it's on the radio, and he says, you know, Jim Brady's dead. I can't use expletives on the radio here, right? No, no, family shot. Okay, good. So, um, and he says you know, what did they Shit. think I'm... Since when? Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Al. Okay. They the say, he says, um, you know, who the F do they think I'm operating on a corpse? He's not dead. He lived. You know, he's doing that. And so, like, um, you know, it, there were a lot of weird, like, and when you start untangling this day, it becomes, um, it becomes bigger than it was. Like, at the time we think about it, before I got in the book, it was, oh, he got winged, he lived, whatever. Right. And historians kind of ignored it because... You know, historians go backwards through time, and it's hard to get to the 70th day of someone's term to find out that was the most significant day or one of the most. But I came in as a crime reporter laterally. I found all this great material, including, like, Reagan, the one line I thought really bonded the American public to Reagan was when he said, I hope you're all Republicans, right? Right. And the doctor goes, today, Mr. President, we're all Republicans, even though he's a flaming liberal, right? Right. He goes, we're all Republicans. (laughs) Well, Reagan, to his credit, like, people say, oh, he had all these great quips. He just tossed his stuff off the cuff. What I discovered about Reagan was he's a very sharp dude, right, very smart, um, much smarter than they thought he was. He understood his role. This role was the stage right now, right? He's in the operating, the emergency room 10 minutes before that, and he's with Jerry Parr. And he looks up at Jerry Parr and says, I hope they're all Republicans. And Jerry Parr looks down, and Jerry Parr's not laughing. Jerry Parr Parr's going out of his freaking mind. President shot. <laughs> oh, my God, he could die. That's not funny. The nurse is, like, thinking, you know, you really need to stop joking, Mr. President, because you could die. is yeah. not funny. And, but Reagan had the sense, I'm going to keep, that's a good line. It fell flat. I'm going to put it in my back pocket and I'm going to deliver it perfectly. And when you look back at Reagan's filmography, better of 53 movies, right? Right. And I watched a lot of these movies when I researched the book and it struck Even me. Even good only, time for
1: Bonzo? I did. <laughs> and,
6: which actually is a better movie that's hard to
1: uh, act opposite
6: a chip, okay? okay? But, but, um, so, I looked through his filmography. What were two what were Reagan's two most famous films? No Googling. No? Two most famous
1: films. Uh, was well, He was The Gipper. The yeah, Gipper. New Rockney. What's the second one? Bedtime for Bonesome? No. No.
6: King's Row. Ah, King's Row. Yeah. His two best scenes in those two best movies? Hospital-like deathbed scenes.
1: Oh, okay. Right? The so Gipper, he dies,
6: and he wakes up and says, where's the rest of me? The, the, the title of his autobiography in the 1960s. Because he had his life amputated and he'd almost died. And so, if anyone understood the importance of that moment, going to an operating room with the world focused on you,
1: it was Ronald Reagan. Right. By the way, the guy was thinking of Frank Reynolds on ABC. Yes. Frank Reynolds. Oh, yes. Frank Reynolds went off camera, looked off camera, and and said, "quote Let's let's try and nail this down." But uh, that's a good point. Let's go back to Nancy Reagan. Yes. Uh, Nancy Reagan, by all accounts in media and books, and including your book. Was a stalwart, seeing her, her this, this truly romance for the ages, her the love of her life on a surgery table, almost dead. Reports came out that she was actually a rock in all this and tried getting everybody back on track. How accurate were those reports in your investigation into the book?
6: I think very. I think she like even into her hospital care. Like there's this one got this one uh, doctor who's like a resident. And the, the, res, the doctors couldn't, had a hard time dealing with her because she was so detailed. She's the son of a surgeon, a famous brain surgeon, and she had all these questions. And they finally just, like, put the underling, and said, you have to deal with this lady. We can't deal with her anymore. Um, what's interesting about Nancy Reagan, this day was, like, the most traumatic of her life. And it, I think and it did influence her decision to start seeing the uh, spiritualist, you know, like mm-hmm. the, the, the fortune person, right. um, which got her a lot of criticism. I'm not... I'm sure that's fair because I think that you know people when confronted with the loss of the love of their life, they were very much to people like that. Um, it's fair criticism, um, but she, you know, I, so I, I give this talk at the Reagan Library, and in walks Nancy Reagan, and she had not, she did not do an interview for the book. She refused to talk. She read the book in, uh, over two days, and a friend told me she sobbed at the end of it. She walks in, and sits in the front row, and I have to deliver this talk. 400 people, Nancy Reagan in the front row. How do I change this? You know, because it's very. Oh my God! I don't want to. You know, she's 93 years old or something. What do I do? And afterwards, Jerry Parr was with me. And sometimes, like we look back at history, all that was so long ago. But like, you know, what it was it? Faulkner's quote: "The past isn't past, isn't, or is not dead yet." Or it's right. a very beautiful quote. And to me, that like Nancy Reagan comes up to Jerry Parr, grabs Jerry Parr by the shoulder, and says, "Jerry, thank you for giving me my life back. 30 years later."
1: Now, in a you have a copy of your book. I bullet. got two so spots. I was like, oh my God, did that yeah. just happen? Yeah. You, you have a copy of your book mm-hmm. which is signed by the entire presidential detail that was on Reagan that day, his body team. Goals to get it signed by all right. when you talk to them we hear the quips about Secret Service agents, they sign up to take a bullet for the president. In this case it actually happened. Did, did they have a sense of they didn't do their job right, they did their job right that day, uh, they would do it again the exact same way? What is the sense you got from the body team that day? I think that there was a huge sense of failure they felt
6: like. Like, you don't want the president getting shot. Um, they did the same advance, that same event. They'd been to that hotel 110 times with presidents from 1971 to 1981, the last decade. And they did it the same way every time that rope line went the same place, just to keep the crowd back. And they didn't think about it. Complacent. If this had been Baltimore, or this had been Philadelphia, or New York, they would have been on edge, because it's all new to them. Right. But this is so routine. A police officer going to that gets roped into it. He's the one who tackles Hickley, one of the guys who tackles him so violently that he shatters his watch. Before he went to the Hilton, he said, oh, you're not doing your normal patrol today, you're going to the going to Hilton. It's, he had thinking about putting on his bulletproof vest. He's like, eh, it's just a hilton. puts it back in the locker and goes. And so they have this huge sense of complacency, and they felt terrible about it. At the same time, the actions of one or two agents, Tim McCarthy, who pivoted and took a bullet without thinking, and Jerry Parr, who acted without thinking. Because there are two interesting trends colliding at this moment to save Reagan's life. Trauma care gets very good. If this is 1976, or this is March of 1977, and he had somehow beaten Ford and then beaten Carter, Reagan dies because the trauma care is not there to save them. There's not enough time. They don't know what they're doing. They're they just reacting haphazardly in the operating room. It's a mess. The other thing that saves him is, in the late 70s, so in 1972, George Wallace gets shot in Laurel, Maryland, right? And he's shot by Arthur Brick. And the detail, one guy gets shot in the neck, another guy gets shot. They dive after him. Wallace falls to the ground. Blood is spreading on his, his white shirt. And an agent's right there, and he froze. He's just there frozen. And you can see the video. And Wallace's wife covers the presidential candidate, covers the body, right? Covers the body. And they learn from this. They say, you know, we have to learn how to react faster. Our training is not intense enough. And so these agents out in L.A. on their own are like, we're going to team up with the L.A. SWAT team. And we're going to take over this old drunk farm in in Saugus, I think, California. And we're going to do all these intense drills. They have helicopters, live fire, bombs going off, throwing people in front of motorcades. And it's called AOP training, attack on principle. Very realistic. They adopt this. So that by the time this happens, Jerry Parr, the fifth-year head of the Secret Service detail, is going through the paces at Beltville like everyone else, two weeks out of every eight, sweating his balls off, you know, running through smoke screens, diving in front of the president over and over and over again until it becomes muscle memory. He also they also instituted a ten-minute medicine class. Not that they teach medicine in ten minutes, but here's ten things you need to know to keep someone alive for ten minutes. And one of those things was bright frothy blood, probably from the lungs, get them to the hospital. They don't do that. He doesn't make it, and so these two things just kind of bam, and Reagan lives. Look, let's, let's
1: we're, talk we're, I, I wanted to ask a question. Go ahead, remind, down remind, more. Me, remind
5: me, remind us what what the world knew in the days after, because my recollection is, as you say, it came so close, mm-hmm. but we didn't know that they didn't want the world to know they how close know. it was. So Tell everyone
4: us
6: about, had everyone had. I heard that, uh, or equities, it's new to me that term, but, like, in terms of news media and everything, but, like, the equities of this were such that the Secret Service didn't want to, they wanted to focus on the heroism and everything, but not admit that Reagan came that close, right? And the White House certainly did not want the public to know, the 70-year-old President of the United States, whose health and age were already matters to campaign. Remember the way he eviscerated um, Jimmy Carter. Harder. Oh, no, that was Mondale. Mondale, 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 Mondale in 84. Carter. But that was an issue with the Aiden campaign, too. You know, he kept Correct. joking, this is the 39th anniversary of my 30th birthday. Right. You know, he kept joking about that. And so, you know, that, and I think that they've kept that quiet. I think as years went on, more came out. Yeah. But not in a way, like, you. I read an AP story, like, from 1995, where the doctors like, oh, he almost died, They published something, and something else. But not in the way, I think, that kind of, like, framed it all on this context and tapestry where you really understand that like a guy's life was literally at stake, hung in the balance of seconds, split seconds, and minutes. I mean, we don't look back. Oh, he was fine, whatever. No, you know, he was born 50 feet the flood.
1: Let, let's let's talk a little bit about about John Hinckley, uh, the, the assailant. Mm-hmm. Um, John Hinckley came from a very nondescript, non-troubled background. Uh, John Hinckley's parents were middle income his his father was I believe a doctor Uh, his mom was a professional in her own right it it, it seems like this household that Hankley came from was a stereotypical American middle class tale yet he, he was obviously a troubled person as you investigate this book when did the trouble start and when did his fascination with Taking out not just Reagan but any president. When did that start, and and how come the Secret Service missed it? That's
6: a great question. Um, all right. So Hinkley's family was totally normal. Mm-hmm. His dad owned an oil services company, very wealthy. Mm-hmm. Um, but he started having some serious like loneliness and kind of other mental health issues so much that so they started seeing him to a psychiatrist. Um, his case, family, his family, did. psychiatrist, and. He wanted to, like, he was a loner. He wanted to be a songwriter. You know, he went out to L.A. a couple times in his life and, like, just lived in hotels, watched TV, ate fast food, never really did anything, tried to be a songwriter and couldn't. He was very lonely. In 1976, he's watching this movie, Taxi Driver, and he becomes enthralled with Jodie Foster. who's playing a 12-year-old prostitute movie. So much so that in 1980, he tracks across the country to New Haven, lies to his parents as I'm going to a writing seminar, at New Haven, at Yale, where she's a student getting away from Hollywood. He tracks her down what room she's in and starts passing notes under her daughter. On top of that, he gets her phone number starts calling her. And how do I know he called her? How do I know what was said? He taped them. He taped the calls. So he's taping these calls and then the calls are so sad. She's like, uh, you got to stop calling me, whatever. What's your name? John Hendricks? You know, getting his name wrong. And at one point, I remember very vividly it struck me. He's like, uh, I hear laughing in the background what's everyone laughing at she says they're laughing at you he was wounded by this he had to prove something so he goes out to track down Carter he thinks that'll be a good idea and he tracks Carter to Dayton and doesn't do it he goes to Nashville, Tennessee and he goes to this event and he changes his mind you know I can't kill President I'm leaving he's going through airport security and they find his guns in the bag. they take the guns he's fined $52.50 and sent on his way and no one connected the dots. Now, one, he's leaving as the president's already there, so he's not like an event. He doesn't come up on the radar because he talked to his psychiatrist only once, the very first meeting of psychiatrist, he said, I really like guns, and I like Jodie Foster. And that was the last time the psychiatrist ever asked him to raise that
1: issue again. Dude, does the Secret Service, in looking back at it, I mean, obviously we didn't have the intelligence gathering <laughs> capabilities that we do today, but does the Secret Service feel that they somehow failed in putting him on the radar? Or was this just a matter of circumstance that they couldn't even forget? There's no way that the, the guy had
6: not... It's not like he had, they had ever caught him near the president or any way to recognize him near the president. I think the lesson the Secret Service took away from this was we need to make it harder to get close to the president yeah. because there are a lot of lunatics in this world. And so now, like, the, the, you go to the Washington Hilton, that entrance is encased in this big cement bunker. Right. And the president goes to an event, he drives into a tent yeah. that's lined with Kevlar. Why? But they don't want you getting, getting in and out of the car is your most vulnerable, apparently. And so they don't want you seeing that. And so that all changed. All those They they, start, they set magnetometers for events after that. And at the beginning, the White House was like, no, 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 they had argued about magnetometers for years. No, 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 they'll piss off our donors. They'll upset people. They don't want it. No magnetometers. After this event, they put magnetometers up, and they started catching all these old ladies going to the White House with guns from out of state because they heard D seems dangerous, right? right. And uh, people started realizing, you know what? You're, you don't have an A-list party in this town unless you have a magnetometer. All
1: right. In, in, in doing the book, we've, we've got eight minutes left in the segment. We're obviously doing away with Tell Me a Story. This is so fascinating. Uh, oh, I'm so sad. I know you're sad by this, Congressman. Um, and so are our listeners. Uh, <laughs> when, when you compile the book and knowing, getting all oh, the access that you did <clears throat> with all the major players, when you look back at this, was this truly, two questions come to mind. Number one, this was a truly monumental point in, in American history. Did this help define the American presidency as having the electorate personally invested in the presidency forward? Does that make sense? I, th- I think in a
6: way it did. I think more so it, it provided us like this unscripted look at a guy's character because the one day you can't fake it, the day you are shot you know, and we're like, that's who you really are. He really is this guy, and people like that. You know, they could never tell who he really
5: was. He's this actor, and right? You know, Alan Moore. That, it, It's it's certainly true. What's intriguing though is because the White House didn't want the world to know how seriously he'd been hit. The Secret Service didn't want to know that they'd come so close to screwing up. So people knew he'd been shot, some kind of a glancing blow by this whack job. But when he joked in a way that fed the narrative that he wasn't hurt that badly, he's he's just this close to being dead, and he's joking, which you know so well. But as I reflect on it back in the day, it was like he was shot, but he's kind of joking about it. Thank God it wasn't as serious as it could have been. Yes, but I think that we also all knew that, and I was only six at the
6: time. (laughs) Interviewing a lot of people, I guess, you know, he was 70 years old, mm-hmm. old guy. He had been shot. He'd been to the hospital. They did disclose how much blood he'd lost, so they kind of bumbled. That was a lot, that he'd been hit, and he's cracking these jokes. And we instantly knew that, like, most people who are shot, let's be honest, are crying. They're not
3: cracking yeah. jokes.
6: Right. And so, I don't, they never kind of portrayed it as a, like, when I looked at the coverage, we took it as a glancing blow. We kind of realized he'd been hurt, kind of seriously, he'd been shot. But, like, we wanted the guy to be brave through it. We didn't want, like, these nurses and doctors, frankly, I was kind of inside the bubble there, and you're right. right. It's interesting kind of dichotomy. Um, and they're like, they never had a patient that, 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 in that close circumstances who was like that
3: before. I think that's his acting, man. He was like an actor, like, too.
6: You? you know
4: something? I don't... There's something that
3: people miss. Everybody knows Ronald Reagan was an actor. Mm-hmm. What they don't think about is... He was a middle American guy. Huh? He came from the Midwest. He came from relatively modest modest background, but he was a middle American type guy. You know, from the Midwest, from the kind of a kind of you know grassroots America that is really right. builds strong character. Right.
0: Yeah. And he the
3: son of an alcoholic shoe salesman. He right. had it. He was he he was a really tough guy. He was an actor, yeah, but that was his business. That wasn't who he was. Exactly. Congressman,
1: let me
2: let me add to that, not detract from it, but he was also an actor. Oh yeah. And and that means that you know he was on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And probably did naturally things that a person equally brave but without that background. Might not have been able to do it. Might not have uh, done mm-hmm. or yeah.
1: thought of doing So, So we, we've got five minutes left in the show, Del. And, and the one question I have, in your book you, you talk a lot about the aftermath and, and how it affected down the road the rest of the Reagan administration. But the one question that pops to mind is, did this event change Ronald Reagan's view of himself as president and the presidency itself?
6: He wrote in his diary that he felt he'd been spared for a purpose. And as someone who was kind of like, um, he was religious but not, he was spiritual but not religious. Right. There's a lot of debate about his religion. religion But he really did believe in God. He believed he'd been spared for a reason. And that reason was to reduce the threat of nuclear war in the country. And that's what he was going to put his effort to. And he writes this like really early on in that time period. And so I believe that's true. You know, people who go through this, really have like a, like they can have like two reactions. One, they can become totally depressed about it all. Or two, they can kind of take the positive of it. And he was kind of that positive person. There's this moment, Tim McCarthy, the agent, first one to leave the hospital. And he's leaving the hospital. And his kids, his two young kids are with them and so is his wife. And Reagan says, I'd like to talk to you before you go. Come to my hospital.
3: And, and
6: McCarthy's like, okay, sure, Mr. President. Goes up to the hospital room and his kids are running around and McCarthy's about to have a heart attack because he's... Not because he'd been shot, but because he's worried the kids are going to pull the tubes out of Reagan by accident, because they're being roughhousing. And the president looks at McCarthy, and McCarthy at this point had been struggling with how to get over this. He'd been shot. Do I keep doing this job? This is all messed up. They didn't have PTSD counseling back then. Mm -hmm. He just wanted
4: PTSD. And
6: Reagan says, he looks at McCarthy and says, Tim, McCarthy, Reagan, Brady, Delahanty, what did this guy have against the Irish? (laughs) I think, was like, oh, he can put this behind him, so can I. Wow. That, and I think that's what he did, while also kind of keeping the, the, the kind of metaphysical significance of it being, you know, he did believe in divine. And I don't know how you couldn't when you're him, as you were talking about him growing up in, like, rural Illinois. Yeah. And he went to Eureka College, and he yeah. could have been a teacher. He said, no, I'm going to take a chance. I believe in myself. He got into the radio. He gets into radio, and he's broadcasting games. Imagine, you're, we're on radio right now, and this guy is broadcasting games based on ticker tape. He's broadcasting Cubs games based on, like, ticker tape. You know, he has to think quick on his feet. He goes, that's not enough. I'm not trying to be an actor. He never saw horizons. horizon. By the time he's president, it's like icing on the cake for his life and where he had come from. You know, that's why he was such a secure person. Like, people don't understand that. Like, they think that, I mean, anyone who has their political nemesis as campaign manager become the chief of staff because he's the best person... Can any modern would any modern politician do that? Would no. Barack Obama have taken Hillary Clinton's campaign manager? No. Well,
3: just look at this. No. You know, when, Reagan, when Reagan came to Washington, he didn't know a whole lot about Washington, but he hiring Jim Baker. Yeah. He brought. He didn't bring a bunch of people. From Chicago or from Los Angeles, right. Well he brought
5: in Meese Mason, he brought Mike Beaver yeah. and he right. had him right next door. Yeah. Yeah. Right. He, he had this sense yes. I need a, a very good. He, he brought he
3: brought Jim Baker in, who is the best political operator in the last twenty five years yeah. in the Republican yeah. side of the world. Yeah. And this guy and he trusted him. He didn't know him but he trusted him because he knew that he was an honorable and straight Well, the, guy. I mean there's there's no. not,
1: so many questions we could ask, but we we've got ninety seconds left in the show. I've got to say, Del Webert, author of Rawhide Down, folks, go get this book. You can get it on Amazon, you can get it at Barnes and Noble. Uh, I, I urge if you have any any a, any insight into this, this really interesting concept, please
2: read Rawhide Down. Better yet, find him in a bar and buy him a drink. <laughs> <laughs> he's actually
1: he's actually smoking a really good cigar right I now. Am. <laughs>
2: Shelly's
3: back room. That's right. Well, you already
1: got it. But on be, but tell we we'd love to have you back again to talk about other stuff outside of this. But on behalf of Congressman Al Swift, Bob Hines, Alan Moore. Hey, Denise, you still with us? I am. Denise, thanks for joining us. Thanks for hanging in there. I'm your moderator, Radio's Justin Russell. We will be back next Tuesday, where we will talk about all the great things in politics inside the Beltway and outside the Beltway. And by the way, this is the best show on radio you've never heard of. We'll be back on Blar Talk Radio from Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. You can follow us on the web. You already got your shot in. This is the place to be. It is. Shelly's Back Room is follow, really good. Follow us on the web, www.backroompolitics.org. You can follow us on the web. We'll see you next Tuesday. Bye-bye, everybody.